Catch Metro FM's Sunday Romantic Repertoire from 3 to 6 p.m. with Sentley live from Disofing on Sunday the 30th of May. And on the decks, the love movement Soulful Sounds with Msizi Shembe, Moji and Sentley, joined by DJ Young, Kabi K, Soul Spice, Bongstar and Black Pat. Live performances also by Mlu, Busi Gold and Debo Homurake. And due to COVID-19 restrictions, uh, tickets are limited. And so do hurry and get yours from the venue. It's starting at 150 Rand for general access and 300 Rand for VIP. COVID-19 screening will be done at all entrances. Gates open from midday until 11 p.m. on Sunday, 30th of May, 2021. And for more information, follow at Metro FMSA on Twitter for more information. Metro FM, it's where the love movement is at. This message is brought to you by Disofing. It is indeed, and 12 minutes it is now after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment uh, where we bring to you the thoughts, the insights, and, uh, you know, the brave, courageous, and very insightful minds of uh, many South Africans that are really pushing us to think in different ways um, and uh, challenging us uh, to uh, really take, um, you know, the culture forward. And uh, indeed, my guest this evening uh, certainly falls within that vein. She's an award-winning radio presenter, a host of uh, SAFM's flagship AM Live, aired between 6 to 9 a.m. weekdays and now uh, also uh, presenting updated noon at 12 uh, to 1 p.m. on weekdays. And she's also on your TV screen every morning on Morning Live. And uh, she uh, joins us uh, this evening, a former uh, presenter of this platform, if I might add, uh, Metro FM Talk with Sakina. And Sakina Kamwendo is my guest this evening. Tuemanditima, always, good evening to you. How are you? <laughs> good evening, Ayabonga. <laughs> it is so good to be back i mean had my best times on this platform yeah so i was say i had to say to to to, my, to say hey man please go look for for sakina uh we need her back uh, because <laughs> you know she certainly did leave us with many a listener um and uh, you I know, left you an award-winning show. Yeah, I mean, you're two, no two no successive pressure. years. Yeah, well, we got a nomination uh, in the business category, but hey, slowly, steadily, but surely, we'll get there. We'll get nah, there. you're doing a fantastic job. We'll uh, you know, these things take time. We all uh, grow in that space, and yeah. you know, listening to you is absolutely fabulous. And you know, you 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 actually are doing what these platforms are created for. Mm, mm, mm. Sakina, and maybe that's a good place for us to start. I mean, you know, you you've worked in the space for many years. You worked in the space even when you were working somewhere else. Um, and when you say, you know, we're doing here what these platforms are made uh, are meant for, I guess. Uh, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that these platforms that we are presented with are actually there for the betterment of society mm. of South Africa as a whole. One of my big fights um, in the early days was always about who gets to be on the radio. Mm. So from my schooling in this regard, the only person that has an absolute right to be on the radio is you, Ayabonga, right mm. now as the host of the show. And then after that, it's a subjective decision as to who gets to be on the radio, mm. whose voices get heard and whose voices don't get heard. And, you know, it, 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 I remember such struggles in making sure that ordinary people's voices are heard on the radio. Mm. Because as uh, Noam Chomsky warns, we do sometimes fall into this trap where we defer 
to the establishment mm. and we speak to the captains of industries, the leaders of our society solely without creating sure, platforms sure. for hearing ordinary people. Mm. And you know, Sakina, when you start there with Noam Chomsky, I, we, we, you know, we could talk the whole night because, uh, <laughs> you know, when you get to this idea just of the role of a platform like the one we have in, you know, what Noam Chomsky calls manufacturing consent. Exactly. Uh, so in really framing the boundaries of what, uh, you know, we think is okay and what we might not think is okay. Um, we also had the public broadcaster, which I guess gets into probably more homes than maybe some of the other private players uh, can potentially get into. Uh, and I want you to talk about just some of your own experiences, both on this platform um, at the public broadcaster, but in many of the other sort of sister stations that you've been part of, um, of how, I don't know how to put this, um, without really, I guess, speaking of censorship, because, you know, the SABC comes from a history of very deep censorship. It comes from a history of, a, you know, uh, the apartheid government and a very state-driven type of uh, broadcasting agenda uh, and public broadcasting agenda. When you came to this space, um, did you still find a strong overhang of that? And uh, would you argue that it's still there? I think I came in at probably the most contentious time in terms of just, you know, censorship and what was going on at the SABC. It was um, before the Polokwane conference of the ANC, and there was the lead up to Polokwane. At the time, there was a blacklist. Mm. There was a commission of inquiry that had been instituted to actually investigate this. And I remember when I started, the only question I asked was, is there a blacklist? Uh, to which Bob Mabena said no. And that was all I needed to know. And from there, it was all systems go. And people who used to listen to the show back then will tell you what a departure it was from what was happening elsewhere. Because we had no holy cows. We were speaking to both sides of the divide. Mm. Even at a time when the ANC itself was struggling to admit that there were factions in the party. We had clearly identified as that I suppose everybody else, but we had the guts to go there and invite both sides, as it were, to come and give their side of the story. But, um, you know, speaking of a public broadcaster, and I think it's so important that we remind ourselves that this is a public broadcaster mm. and not a state broadcaster. Sure, sure. And what that means is simply that even a homeless person sitting under a bridge who doesn't have two cents to rub together, has a stake in the SABC. They have a stake in what goes on there. So that SABC is not the fiefdom of any one person or mm. a group of people. It belongs to every single South African. And when it comes to the public service mandate of the SABC, this is something that we need to guard jealously because that is where we come into our own mm. as the SABC, where we actually have to provide a service of keeping the South African public informed, but also not forgetting that because we have access that comes with being on such a powerful platform, um, we have to then ask the question, hold leaders accountable, mm. which people ordinarily may not be able to do. Mm, mm. 
Sakina, I want us to, to hold the line there for a second, uh, take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to continue on this vein because I think there's also a lot of uh, contemporary developments um, that uh, I want us to think about, certainly for, for many of us, you know, as, as young workers, um, you know, in, in the public broadcasting space and, uh, you know, who are trying to execute that public service mandate. Um, and, of course, some of the challenges that come with that and uh, I guess the role... Uh, for for many of us of, of trying to organize ourselves and be able to carve out a voice for ourselves in the space uh, in a context where, yeah, not the best things are said about many state-owned entities. And uh, we'll get into that after this. It is indeed, and uh, 22 minutes it is now after 8 p.m. I'm in conversation uh, with uh, uh, award-winning broadcaster uh, Sakina Kamwendo. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, one of the uh, colleagues... Uh, certainly in this uh, industry that many of us uh, grew up listening to and continue to look up to. Um, and Sakina, I mean, before we went to the break, we were just talking about, uh, I guess, you know, this uh, public service responsibility that many of us broadcasters who work um, for the public broadcaster, not the state broadcaster, um, have on our shoulders. And I guess that there's also, you know, another question on the flip side of that, which is, you know, in a context where you're seeing many of the challenges that are no doubt well known to even to our listeners, Section 189 processes, retrenchments, layoffs, um, you know, restructuring of the organization, and even, um, I guess, how, how we think of that mandate. If you think about certain languages, for instance, um, that now have had to, I guess, fall on the sword of austerity, if I can put it that way. Um, what do you make of how... Um, we think of ourselves in the workplace, just as working people, but also in addition to that, how we organize ourselves. Because uh, certainly in the newsrooms I've worked in, there's always a sense that, and it's implied sometimes, that, yeah, we think, you know, the bosses have our interests at heart uh, and we expect democracy in every other aspect of our lives and when we interview people, but oftentimes not in the places we work in. It couldn't be truer than for us. <laughs> because, um, you know, I remember um, back when I was still at Metro FM, uh, during one of those times when I was so unceremoniously pulled off air. Mm. And you, you you happen to learn fast. Uh, you happen to understand the dynamics, except that the SABC is, is such a gigantic um, organization that it takes time for you to understand who's who and what goes where. Mm. But once you do, you kind of understand that, you need to traverse and place your ball strategically. But um, speaking of organizing, you see, there is at the SABC, and you would know this, you have your independent contractors on the one hand, and then you have permanent staff on the other hand. And when it comes to permanent staff, they seem to be very well organized, but independent contractors not. Mm. You would have meetings called where people have tried to organize for independent contractors, and most of your on-air staff are independent contractors mm. who, for the most part, like um, someone actually brought to my attention earlier this month that I've been in, in radio for 20 years this year, and they actually said to me, you know, it's, it's, it's no mean feat that you've lasted this long, long yeah. given that you signed a yearly contract. So wait, you've signed... people don't understand you've signed, you signed, signed a yearly 20 contract. contracts. Basically, you've signed 20 contracts. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Every year, you don't know whether you're coming or going, staying or going. 
and 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 you you have to live with that. But um, I must say, you know, if you put in the work, you know your work, then you know that the organization, you know, would be better off for having you. And as such, you you, you do derive mm. some sense of comfort. It's not complete, but but there is some sense of comfort in knowing that you are doing your best. And for me, the philosophy has always been, I'm not here to serve individuals. I'm here to serve South Africa and the listeners and the viewers come mm. first. Let's shift away from broadcasting. We'll come back to some, some of the issues that you're raising there. Um, and I guess what, what, what lessons uh, uh, for many of us, you know, uh, uh, young ones here at the public broadcaster. Um, but, but let's maybe take a step back. I mean, you, you started at Aldo's FM. And at I the did. time you were working at the Matt Center. And I was saying earlier on, you know, if, um, <laughs> if you've ever in your life interacted or lived in Bramfontein like I have, you certainly know what the Matt Center is about and, um, you know, some of the work that they do. Talk to us about that time. I mean, uh, and what was happening around you uh, during that time? Oh, man. So um, the Math Center, um, uh, it was it started out as this little NGO, the Math Center for Professional Teachers, mm. and um, later became the Math Center because it was a center that uh, basically did work mathematics um, in schools. So as you know, we have a problem. We still have a problem all these years on uh, with uh, the teaching and learning of mathematics mm. in this country. Mm. Um, mathematics and physical science, other subjects, but mathematics, you know, is where I work. So what we did is we essentially developed um, materials, you know, uh, we wrote textbooks, we uh, developed um, worksheets, workbooks, and you basically went out and you trained teachers. So you were essentially teaching teachers how to teach mathematics. Mm. And um, it was really one of the most fulfilling things that I ever did in my life. Hmm. When, when, when that light goes on, when somebody suddenly understands what you are trying to say or why it is that this child does not understand how to add fractions, hmm. it's because often the teacher is missing something. Sure, sure. So, you know, when you say to a teacher, so what are the basic principles that underpin addition? And the teacher gives you a blank stare. Okay. So how are you going to help this child? Huh. If you don't know whether the child is augmenting or aggregating, what, how, what are you going to do? And unfortunately, the benchmark is so low huh. for our teachers that it becomes difficult for them to basically do their best with these children. So the math center was all about making sure that, you know, we up to that level, mm. the content knowledge for teachers. And it, it really was, as I say, one of the most fulfilling things I ever did. What goes to your mind then when you sit now uh, and you interview you know, people from the educational authorities or you interview uh, advocacy organizations and NGOs that complain about the same problems you found um, back then in the educational system and I think problems that we're certainly going to be dealing with for many years here in South Africa with the kind of legacy that we come from. Um, I mean, what comes to your mind during that moment? And I guess you, you've also sort of won yourself the name of uh, some social problems. So I guess that, <laughs> that and many other problems uh, that, uh, that you've engaged with uh, in your broadcasting career. Yeah, it's, it's, I must say 
on, on, on one level, you know, I want to be shocked, but I'm not. Um, and then I want to be annoyed. And, and, and you have to pull yourself back and look at the objective factors at play. Uh, but it, it is saddening. It, it really is. Because you have to then understand why is it that progress is so painfully slow? Mm. Where are we getting stuck? You know, um, I remember back in the day, the very first TIM study that South Africa participated mm. in, where we came dead last. It wasn't the fact that we came dead last that bugged me. There was cause the children actually fared better in concepts that they had never dealt with in class. Wow. So the concepts that were dealt with in class, the children failed dismally at. So they were better at the concepts that they, that they were seeing for the first time and trying to figure out uh, for themselves. So we're effectively spooking children out, I mean, rather than effectively giving them anything. Well, let me put a disclaimer. That was during the first term study. Sure. I need to go and look at what has subsequently happened. Uh, uh, practically go back to the latest term mm. study where, again, you know, we, we really are not showing the sort of progress that we ought to show, that we could show. Um, and, and I'm not quite sure why, but perhaps, perhaps um, part of the problem is that teaching is something that happens to people. Mm. as opposed to them happening to teaching sure, as a vocation. Sure, sure. So you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, and you don't get in, you know, where they ask you your choices, second, third choice, and somehow you land up in teaching. Mm, mm. And I guess, you know, probably have uh, too little uh, of that Frarian idea um, in South African teaching because there's also the hierarchies of power in it. I mean, you don't have that idea that, you know, as a teacher, as I walk into a classroom, I'm also here to learn as much from uh, these young people and their worldview and outlook on the world uh, as I can potentially share sort of from my own vantage point as a teacher. It still seems and feels very hierarchical, very, you know, it still feels like you're going to get beat up, but I guess now maybe without the corporal punishment. But if you think about it, um, it would be that way um, because for you to be open to learning from your students, you need to be comfortable and secure in your own knowledge. Mm. So if you're not, what happens then is that you feel as though you've been challenged. Hmm. Whereas you're not being challenged, you know, sometimes some kids are just very smart. Yeah. Sakina, I mean, you're known, I guess, for taking... Uh, on the powerful, holding them to account, um, but also, I guess, you know, really having uh, what uh, many would call uh, that common touch that allows people really to be drawn to you um, and to really share, um, you know, their experiences. Um, and, and I guess that's what sort of makes you such a strong broadcaster. If, if you had one interview that you did when you were on this platform, where at the same time you felt enraged, you felt courageous, but you also felt very scared at the same time, what discussion was that? <laughs> uh, with all of those, um, maybe with Ngugi uh, Wationgo. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that, that was an, one of the interviews that stood out for me because, you know, um, because of the level of respect that I had for him, mm. I was uh, a bit fearful. Uh, but 
also just listening to him and, you know, talking about Africa and who we are, what we do, how we sell, who we are. Uh, you know, th- th- that was a bit frustrating and, uh, you know, annoying. But at the same time, it, 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 it was also a learning moment because I still remember him saying, you know, as Africans, we're surprised when people from the West come here and they expect to see elephants and lions roaming mm-hmm. around in the street. And, you know, we take exception to that. But, uh, he says, think about how we sell Africa to the rest of the world. Hmm. What do we do? We say, come, there's the big five. You know, as South Africa, that's what we sell. Uh, we sell safaris. So, so these are the first things people think that, oh, these things just roam around on the streets. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's something that's, equally mundane and profound at the same sure, time. Sure. Hmm. And 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 I guess on that vein just as we you know as we wrap up uh, it's not quite unfortunate that we're nearing out of time. But this this idea of I guess the decolonization not just of the campuses I guess many people in my generation have sort of been agitating for but even decolonizing of cultural spaces and spaces of the production and dissemination of knowledge. Um, like this medium that we're using now to communicate. Um, what does that look like for you? I mean, as somebody who thinks about these things, as somebody who interacts uh, both with government and market failure every day, um, and, you know, trying to make sense of that and trying to hold people uh, who exercise power to account, what, what does that look like? What is sort of remaking many of these institutions that were built on a very different premise? What does that look like for you? To be honest, I don't know, because I don't know that we completely understand or even have a common understanding of what we mean by decolonization. Mm, sure. So we need to first establish amongst ourselves what it, exactly it is that we are talking about. You know, for one person, it's about hair. For another person, <laughs> it's about language. For another person, it may be about education and Yes, all of that comes in, but have we ever sat back and thought about what exactly that decolonized Mm. space will look like? And what the essence of it is. Precisely. Where do we start? Because, you know, it's it's all good to have these grand, airy-fairy ideas, but it all comes to naught when you don't know how to implement it. What is the basic What are the rudiments of this particular philosophy? We we need to come up with, you know, something that is workable. Um, You look at some of the uprisings uh, on the continent, for example. Um, You look at what happened in Sudan. Mm. And you have this uprising. Yes, you know, we need a change of leadership. But then no sooner are you achieving that goal and you realize, hold up. People didn't think beyond the mm. leadership being gone. So yeah. what now? Egypt, Tunisia. Egypt, exactly. South, and yeah, some things, they, you, you can name mm. them. And we need to think beyond, um, you know, the ideal, because that's what you ultimately come to. But what are the building blocks to get there? Mm. Aish, we're very good when we have to speak high-level, ideational. But project management and just execution... Getting and it's hard done. work. Oh, 
It's hard work. Look at our languages. Mm. We don't even pay attention to our languages. You know, you look at terminology and terminography for our languages and how they develop. Yeah. What are we doing? And I mean, there's examples in this country. I mean, you know, uh, fault them for whatever, but uh, the National Party and uh, the whole process of creating all these kaltir for rianichings and all manner of other things was really also about, I guess, making their language a language of tutelage, a language of inquiry and a language of commerce. Absolutely. You, you've got to work on that. You've got to build that. And are we doing enough? I dare say we're not. Mm. So... At what point are we hoping to get to that point where you can go to a university of KwaZulu-Natal and the medium of instruction is is Zulu for everything that you do? Yeah. I've got a message here for you from uh, someone on Twitter who's called The Power of Why and uh, saying, I'm really enjoying this conversation. My favorite interview uh, that Sakina had was the one she had with the SARS IT lady in 2018 (laughs) on Morning Live. Particularly from yourself. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, Sakina, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we certainly stand on the shoulders of giants and uh, uh, we appreciate you. We love the work that you do. And may you continue to inspire us, uh, certainly as young workers here at The Public Broadcaster. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'm honored and blessed. And uh, thank you so much. And to everybody who's listening, everybody who used to listen, who's oh, still listening, always. love you all. My always. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> all, all these names, I love them and I, and I receive them. Awesome stuff. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye. That there was Sakina Kamwendo, our thought leader on this Thursday.